You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. It's going to be found in Matthew uh, chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to tell you how many verses we're reading. That way you don't get distraught, but we'll be okay. Um, So uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there are some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those and follow along. Uh, In those Bibles, it'll be on page 775. Uh, into 776. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen. Uh, and if you are willing and able this morning, uh, when you get there, if you could stand for the reading of God's word, we want to read it together. So Matthew chapter 21, starting verse 1. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others put branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him and the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Glad that you're here for the 9 a.m. and uh, that you guys got up early this morning to celebrate with us. Um, I just want to say uh, welcome, and like Eric said, I want to reiterate, thanks so much for making us a part of your week. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we're really glad that you're here, especially if it is your first time. Um, like Eric said, this morning what we're going to be doing is kind of coming to the back end of following Jesus to the cross from the transfiguration story uh, all the way to Calvary. And one unique thing about this morning... Uh, apart from the fact that it is Palm Sunday, which Palm Sunday, for those of you who may not be familiar with that idea, is the one week uh, before Jesus' uh, resurrection celebration that we have. So Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the final time before his death as he is going to face the the wonky trial that they put Jesus on. Um, He's going to be put through 
uh, great torture, and you get the, the Garden of Gethsemane scene where they come out at night like, like he's a robber and, and, and take him into the Sanhedrin Council, and they take him uh, before the Roman procurators, and they end up uh, leading him all the way uh, to be crucified, and then three days later rise again. This is the final ride into Jerusalem of King Jesus, and we celebrate it, and we call it Palm Sunday as Christians because all of the crowds take palms, and they lay these palm branches at the feet of Christ as he rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and they, they sing praises to him. Now, the difference, the uniqueness this morning is what we've been doing is talking through Jesus' words, his teachings, and we've been saying, well, I think I need to move over here. I always do this. There we go. Sorry about that. What we've always done is we, we, we've been walking through for, I guess, maybe the last eight or so weeks and saying, what are the teachings of Jesus? Um, as he's walking to Jerusalem, because if this is kind of the final days of his life, we probably need to incline our ear into the things that Jesus is saying, because he's going to be prioritizing the things that are important to him right before his death. Just like anyone else that knows that their death is near, he's probably going to be prioritizing certain themes, and that's been true. This morning, though, there's a, there's a stark turn in the stories uh, of Jesus's life before the cross, in that these 17 verses focus heavily on what Jesus does and not as much, there are some things that Jesus says, but not as much on Jesus' teaching or his words. So this morning, if you've ever heard the old adage, actions speak louder than words, it's never been more true than in Jesus' actions here on Palm Sunday. Because he does things that are extremely unique, some of them uh, almost mind-boggling because they kind of go back to back and, and almost seem contradictory one to another, but very meticulous and very purposeful. Now, before we pray, I want to just kind of set the stage for you. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem with one thing and one thing alone on his mind. And yes, it is Calvary. It is he is headed to the cross to fulfill that which God has sent him to do, his mission. Now, you got to remember, his disciples don't know, even though he's told them point blank, like you and I, so don't get too self-righteous yet, just like God tells us many things that we forget on a regular basis, the disciples do the same thing. He's already told them three times, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and then three days later, I'm going to rise. But you're going to find out that even later on, Peter forgets this and cuts a guy's ear off because of it, okay? So just like you and I forget and we're forgetful, they're forgetful. And Jesus has his eyes to do the thing that the Father sent him to do. But there's a deeper layer, there's a deeper, deeper level that we need to recognize. Jesus is not only going to the cross uh, singularly, but also he's going as the prophet, priest, and king of God who's coming to fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures. We know this because in Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus preached his most famous sermon, he said, I have not come to do away with the scriptures, but rather to fulfill them. So Jesus didn't come to rewrite the old law. He came to fulfill the old law in its entirety and in perfection. So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, not just as the king that God has sent, not just as this prophet, as they say here, a prophet from Nazareth, or from Nazareth and not just as this, you know, objectionary, uh, fiery priest who's fighting against the other chief priests, but as the true and better king from God, the true and better prophet from God, the final high priest forever and ever and ever after the order of Melchizedek, which is what Hebrews says, God's high priest that he's chosen. And he's doing all of these things in order to head to the cross and to say these three words, which we're going to celebrate next week, it is finished, which we all get this great weight that comes off of our shoulders and our hearts in hearing those words from Jesus. It is finished for you and I, 
The, the battle's already been won by Christ. But in order for that battle to be won, Christ has to not only do certain things, he has to be that which God has called him to be. So what I want to do is pray first, and then we're going to hop into the text. And we've got a lot of work to do, and I'm hoping to do it in a reasonable time frame because we have another gathering. So you guys get the, the short version, and then I'll just keep them as long as I want. It's Palm Sunday, and I have the face microphone, you know. It's like Billy Matt. It's like a wedding singer, Adam Sandler. I have the microphone, so you have to do whatever I say. All right. I've never seen that movie. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, uh, just thank you so much for just the opportunity to open your word, Lord. We are so humbled by the fact that you've preserved your word all these years, that we might have clear direction, that we might have not just a truth, the truth, that you, this, this word that you've given unto us is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. It guides us to you, my God, and we thank you for it. And we ask now that as we recollect 2,000 years ago what the Lord Jesus did on our behalf under your mighty and gracious hand, Father, and according to your will, as we reflect, Holy Spirit, would you begin to stir our hearts, stir our affections, stir our passions to worship the one and true and final king, the one true and final prophet, the one true and final priest. God, help us to see Jesus for who he is and rightly join in with the babies, with the crowds, and as the Lord said, even the rocks would cry out if we didn't. Help us to join in this morning with the song of heaven, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, help us to do that, and not just with our mouths, but as we leave, with our lives. Help them to cry out in worship to you, Lord Jesus, and we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. All right, let's start in verse one, and I just want to, I want to, I want to draw your attention to Jesus kind of flexing a little bit here as he's heading into Jerusalem. Let's start in verse one. They drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives and Jesus sent two disciples. Some say this is James and John. It's really irrelevant. Uh, but what we know here is that two disciples get sent out. And whenever Jesus sends you on an assignment, you need to expect that it's going to more than likely be uh, against your comfortability levels. And uh, if you're a Christian, then you know this. When the, one of the first things that happens is you come to know Christ and you're saved, and then you recognize that that which Christ has called you to do is not just uh, difficult, it's not just tough, it's not just, oh man, it's uh, you know, weird. It's impossible without him. Like, that's the call of the Christian. Take up your cross and die, and you need to expect me to resurrect you in order to walk every single day. So here's the assignment they get sent out on these two disciples. You gotta imagine them kind of trembling. Jesus says, I got an assignment for you, verse two. He says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now he's going to immediately address the, uh, the opposition to this, right? He's going to address their concerns in verse 3. Before they even ask them, he says, if anyone says anything to you, say unto them, the Lord has need of them, or the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Okay, I love this because this is Jesus reiterating to his disciples and to everyone that he is in complete control. He tells them, Hey, I need a donkey, and there's going to be a colt tied. Go to this house. So he gives them the address, okay? When you show up there, they'll be tied. They'll look like this. Just take them. And you got to think the disciples are like, So you want us to steal? The farming community, agricultural situation, you just want us to take that. Yes, and he just cuts them off and says, and if anyone, has any, if anyone says to you anything, which that happens, right? I mean, we're from Texas, like you start stealing stuff, you get shot. And so we're like, what do you do? And Jesus' answer is just, hey, the Lord has need of them. Now, I do not encourage you to try this. 
this is only if the Lord tells you to do this, that you might uh, you know, maybe go out and try this. But he just tells them to look and say, the Lord has need of them. Now, what I love about this is they do it, they're questioned, they respond as Jesus, and they are just let go. Like, Lord, the Lord, Jesus is in complete control. He knows the house, the donkey, the colt. And what I love about Jesus is in order for him to fulfill the Old Testament law, which this is a prof- prophecy from Zechariah, he doesn't say, hey, Judas, uh, give me some of the money from the money bag. Let's go buy a donkey and a colt. We've got to get this thing done. He just says, I'm going to borrow one, and I'm going to put it in the hearts of the owners that when they hear the Lord has need of them, they're going to be like, oh, okay. And that's what happens. Sends the disciples, they borrow it, they bring it to Jesus, and Jesus starts mounting up on this uh, donkey that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on. Now, you might be thinking, why would King Jesus ride into Jerusalem if he really is going to be the Messiah who's going to liberate all of God's people from uh, their, their, their oppressors, why would he come in on a donkey? You'd think that's, that's like a, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, what's the movie? It's Sherlock Holmes or Robert Downey Jr. They're all riding on horses and he has that little bitty donkey and he keeps coming on like behind them. Like why would, that, that seems like silly. It doesn't look intimidating. It's not like a war horse. Why is Jesus riding in on a donkey? And the reason is not just uh, incidental, it is essential. What Jesus communicates here by riding in on a donkey has everything to do with the point of Palm Sunday. He's coming in as the king that the Lord has sent with a message, and that message is as he's riding into the rebel city, because Jerusalem has turned away from God, so has all humanity. And as God's messenger comes in, God's king that he has sent rides in, he rides in on a donkey and says, I have a message of peace that I bring to you. That's intriguing, isn't it? You would think, and I think that the disciples thought this. This is why Peter in a little bit is going to bring out the sword and he's going to try to cut the high priest's ear off because they think Jesus is coming to overturn the system and he's coming to make war against God's enemies. Instead, Jesus comes as a king who comes to make peace with God's enemies. And his message is, I'm coming to make peace through the shedding of my own blood. Now, why is peace so important? I think All of us have had, in different seasons, different times, this nagging feeling in our hearts that something's not right, something's gone wrong with the world, or something's gone wrong with us. This becomes more acute when you suffer. So if you've ever gone through difficult seasons of suffering, you probably have felt this more prominently. It can fade into the background when things are going all right. You know, when things start going all right, and your, your fortunes turn, as they say, it's in the background, but still... There's always this feeling that there's this battle that's raging inside of us. It's like a hangnail, like a spiritual hangnail, you know, that just you can't get rid of. And our secular culture tries to respond to this in a myriad of ways, uh, you know, that we try to respond to why humanity has this problem. Um, But they all miss the mark because they miss the essence of the problem, which is that we have a deeply spiritual, broken state And therefore, it can't be solved or wrangled by carnal means. This hangnail that we're dealing with, this sense that we're kind of out of place in the world, or that things aren't as they should be in the world, is a spiritual issue. And our culture can only respond to what they see, taste, touch, and feel. And so we try to keep, you know, medicating in various ways that feeling or or therapeutically addressing that feeling. But what Jesus is writing in to Jerusalem to recognize is that you and I are at enmity with God from birth. And therefore, this spiritual hangnail can't be addressed unless he addresses it at the subterranean levels of your soul. That there has to be peace that's made between us and God, and we can't do it on our own. This is the narrative of Scripture. The narrative of Scripture is that because of our first parents, we all are kind of born into existence with this tension between us and God. 
And it's not like whenever you and your wife get into an argument and you go into other rooms and there's a cold shoulder for six hours. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a deep, abiding opposition in our souls and God's heart for us that we want to exist and we want to map out an existence for ourselves that precludes him, that excludes him, and that keeps him on the sidelines. Here's the thing, and I think it's important for me to say this and I don't want to get in the weeds. Religious people can do this too. It's not just those who you might deem as to being agnostic or atheist or secular, whatever word you want to use, that, that keep their lives. Religious people keep God on the sidelines by, by doing all the right things and telling God, just stay in your lane. I keep the rules so that you stay in your lane and I stay in mine. That way you don't have to mess with me, right? And this, this heart condition where we don't want God to be engaged with us, we don't want to actually submit under his authority, is the deep issue that Jesus comes to ride into Jerusalem to fix, it's this kind of spiritual exile that you and I are living under. Like the Bible starts like this. We have Eden where we're in fellowship with God and because of sin, we're driven out of the Garden of Eden and we're in spiritual exile from then on. There's this place that we can't get to. Have you ever felt that? Even in your best moments, you don't feel like you know, you're, it's perfect. It's like 90% good, 95. Maybe some of you who are amazing have hit like 99%. You know, it's like that middle cushion on your couch where you're like, this is it. This is the moment that it all hits all right, you know? And, but you, you still have this nagging sense that I haven't been able to, to completely get there. And here's the worst one, and I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer on Palm Sunday, but even when you have those 99%, you have this feeling of like, how long will it last until the next shoe drops? You ever have that? It's terrible, right? It's because there's this spiritual exile that we're wrestling with, and our first parents who went into rebellion, they kind of set the stage for this. And Jesus, the Son of God, rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he says this, I have come to make peace with you. Not just physical peace. I've come to create spiritual peace between you and God. And now the only one who has the right to judge us, who had the right to come in on the white horse and slay, has decided he wants to come in on the donkey humbly to extend peace. This tells us what God's approach to rebels like us is, namely that God's approach to us is not to ride in and end us, although he could, but to draw us back to himself in kindness. That's God's heart toward humanity. Romans tells us this. It says the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness towards us is to draw us back into repentance so that we might find life again. And when we consider Christ on Palm Sunday, we should be asking ourselves, are we, are we going to respond to this prodding as he's riding into Jerusalem? Now, I think this is good to juxtapose against the second coming of Christ, just so you get two pictures, right? So Revelation 19, it should be put up on the screen. I just want to read verses 11 through 16. This is Jesus' second coming. Now think, riding out on a donkey on Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is humbly riding out on a tiny little animal, and it's, it's, a, it's a really humble and, and kind moment. This is what John the Revelator sees when Jesus returns the final time. It says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Okay, Jesus has got a new animal. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, capital F, capital T. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is key. Jesus comes the second time with different intentions. Jesus came to forgive and make peace. The second time, he comes to judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, and his, he is clothed in a robe dipped in what? Blood. Guess what blood that is? His very own. And then I saw heaven opened, and the name by which, you, oh, yeah, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp 
sword with which, with which he can strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is the most intense thing you're going to hear this morning. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That's intense, and I'll leave it at that. Jesus' second coming is coming in to finally have the judgment of God arrive on the earth. And that day is coming. Now, this is juxtaposed against Jesus and Palm Sunday, and here's why. Because right now, we still sit as the, as the king of the universe rides in to make peace with me and you. I want to read to you out of the Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 16. This is King Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live. Here's what he says about a king. He says, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. <laughs> That's important, right? He says, when the king shows up to your door and he's angry at you, you would be wise to do what he says. That seems like good wisdom, right? That's a solid proverb. I hope you're teaching your kids things like this. Now watch this. But in the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Jesus comes in to to both appease the wrath of God Almighty on your behalf, but also to turn that wrath to favor by the grace of God and the gospel so that when God looks down on us, because we're in Christ, it's like the clouds that bring the spring rain. God smiles upon his children again, despite the fact that you and I know, because we got that nagging hangnail, that we don't deserve that kind of smile. But in Christ, it's yours. That's great, isn't it? That's amazing. And this is Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in, says, hey, yes, there's gonna be judgment. I'm coming to give you a new covenant, a new contract, and it's going to be written in my blood, not yours. I'm going to be the one that does everything to make this contract real. All it's going to require of you is faith. Now, what's the application point here? I want to briefly mention this. You know, we live in a time where we desperately need peacemakers in our world, and there are just very few and far between. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And Christians, we are uniquely positioned to be peacemakers because we serve the king of peace who came to make peace with us. Now, in order to truly make peace, there must be atonement that's made, which is what Jesus does for us. Sometimes when you have these struggles, you have these arguments, you have these battles, you have these deep enmity between two parties, it's because there's been offenses that has created this enmity, it's created this problem, and someone's been offended by another, and so somebody's saying, who's going to pay? And only the Christian worldview has an answer to that that isn't an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Our answer is Christ has paid. And therefore, we can make peace in the most unlikely of circumstances. I want to consider that when we're wronged, or please prayerfully consider this. When you're wronged, are you a peacemaker? Are you courageous like Jesus, willing to ride into situations and not just start stomping heads, but coming with the kind and gentle words that Christ would give you? And if you're married in the room, I just feel it might be good to hear, are you extending the hand of peace to your spouse when they inevitably are making war with you? If you haven't experienced that, give it time. But Christian marriages can extend the hand of peace in Christ, and therefore they can last. Okay, let's go to the next scene here. So this is where it starts to get weird. Jesus does that, where it's peace. Jesus is humble, coming in on a donkey, extending peace. He's going to turn around and do something that seems I would say counterintuitive. Let's start by reading in verse number 12. So I'm skipping down a little bit. They have acknowledged Jesus' kingship. They're worshiping him. And then in verse 12 it says, And then Jesus entered the temple. And what does he do? 
He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. It's like, Jesus, did you just go bipolar on us? where you rode in on a donkey, and the first thing you did, the other gospels record Jesus fashioned his own whip, which if you have enough time to fashion a whip, you'd think he could cool down. You know, it's like if you have enough time to like get into the shop, you know, it's like that's when a guy kind of calms down. If your husband ever goes to the shop, you're like, okay, maybe he'll calm down out there. Not Christ, just keeps getting fueled up about this, goes into the temple and just starts whipping, listen to this, whipping people out. That's extreme. You might you read that and you're like, okay, well, it's Jesus. It's like, yeah, except it's absolutely crazy. He's whipping these people out of the temple, gets them all out of there. And then he doesn't stop there. He stands and looks at all of them and says, my father's house or my house is called a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves. Now, he's not just talking to the money changers and the, and the pigeon salesmen because he's already kicked them out. Who's the only people left? The chief priests. These are the people who are called to steward over and protect the temple. They're the ones who are called to be there and kind of be overseeing all this. He looks directly at them and says, you are a den of robbers. I want you guys to picture that. Like a den is just kind of a a dingy concept, isn't it? A den of robbers. He's, He's calling them something grotesque. Now, you might think, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was here to extend a hand of peace. Why is he coming in with a whip? Why is he wrecking tables? Now listen to me, this is important. One of the greatest misconceptions of Christianity is that because Jesus makes peace with us, he suddenly becomes tolerable and malleable when it comes to sin. This is just not true. Sin if, is the very reason that we're at odds with God in the first place. So just because Jesus is willing to die in our place for that very sin, it does not mean that he's willing to permit that sin to go on unconfronted in our lives. We must consider this. Jesus shows up to make peace, but he has a disposition towards sin, and it's not a tolerant one. It's a passionate, oppositional position towards sin. So he's not only the king of Israel who's writing in to make peace, but he is also the one, the prophet, the true and better prophet that's writing in in order to fulfill God's promises of the prophets. Now, if you don't know the prophets, they're the, uh, the books toward the end of your Old Testament. They're called the minor and the major. Minor and the major prophets don't mean that you have varsity prophets and then JV prophets. It's just about the length of the books. But these guys, if you haven't read them, they're not like, you know, you don't read these at night to your kids, you know, like bedtime stories. You know, you read the Psalms or whatever. You don't read like typically Amos or Isaiah. You know, you're not going to talk about the, Jeremiah, you might go to like chapter 29 and talk about the plans that the Lord has for you. Just don't read the next verse where Jeremiah is getting his eyes plucked out and stuff. It's not pleasant. Prophets are guys in rough clothing. They typically live alone. People, like the kings were not happy when the prophets showed up. They would pay these guys off to say nice things because they knew if they heard bad things, it always just went bad for them. You have these crooked prophets in the, in the Old Testament where they're literally getting paid off by the kings because so many of the righteous prophets like Elijah and Elisha had just wrecked shopped on the, all of Israel and all the palace so many times that they start getting this, uh, hey, will you give us a good word? We'll give you good money. But the prophets, the true prophets, tend to be these guys who don't take lightly sin, spiritual compromise, and they're a little bit rough around the edges. So Jesus rolls in and typologically he is that kind of prophet here and he is aggressive. He comes in and starts whipping people and speaking the oracles of God. Just like the Old Testament prophets, he goes right after Israel's leaders and calls them out for their spiritual compromise. And I want to notice, let's walk through the things that he does briefly. First, he handles the money changers. Well, what are the money changers? Very simply put, 
There's a sacrificial system where Israel would travel from, people would, the Jews would travel from great lengths or, or, or short journeys to get to the temple at Passover in order to worship their God. The way they were called to worship their God was to have sacrifices that were bloodletting. There was, there was a shedding of blood for the worship, and so they had to have animals. Even the poorest among them, listen to this, had to have pigeons, which were cheaper, but God had made a system to where basically if you were poor, you didn't have to spend a great big amount of money that you didn't have on a lamb. You could still worship God by purchasing the pigeon. We'll come back to this. But ultimately, the money changers were there because now the Jews had been scattered all abroad. They didn't only live in Israel, and Roman was occupying most of their areas, so they had to change their money from a series of different currencies to one currency in order to purchase from the salesmen their sacrifices. Now, you might be asking, well, isn't that kind of shady? Why didn't they bring their own sacrifices? Some of them were traveling two, three-month journeys, and they couldn't just bring all of their sacrifices. So at a face level, these guys, money changers, the, the salesmen, would seem to be doing something that's helpful. They're doing something that might help these people worship God truly, right? And therefore, the chief priest allowed this. Now, here's the catch. The money changers exacted an exorbitant amount of interest for their changing of the currency. And the pigeon salesmen, in particular, that Jesus comes after here, along with the others, would extort these people, particularly the poor people, to pay like these exorbitant prices for these pigeons because he, they knew that they had them under the religious rules. You have to pay for this. Have you ever had this, right? We all know this as Americans. How many things do you have to buy? And therefore, because the government has said you have to buy it, the prices tend to go up, 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 because you have to, right? I'm not saying anything uh, ill about it. Here's a good example. You have to have a sticker on your car. It is going to happen. Have you noticed that the prices on those stickers just tend to increase? Not getting into politics, but they just go higher. Because you have to purchase them. That's what's happening here. They know you have to. The, the chief priest recognized they have to buy these pigeons. I don't care if they're poor. Rack up the prices. Jesus shows up after writing in an extending piece, and he is angry because there's this mass amount of human bodies going around trying to engage in this worship session. And in reality, it's all spiritually perverted. So he drives everybody out. He looks right to the chief priest, and he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. Or another way to put that might be, you are glory thieves, glory robbers. That's what you are. And my father's house was called to be what? A house of prayer, worship and dependence on God. You don't, you don't, you know, you picture the temple, the Old Testament temple, and you think like peace, serenity, sacredness, holiness. Jesus walks in in his day and it looks a lot more like Reliant Stadium. And he's done with it. He's done with it. And so he starts whipping people out. Now, it's important to note here, Jesus didn't only come in here to call out the chief priest. He also comes to cleanse the hearts of everyone. That's what prophets do. You see, the people themselves had forgotten that sin is costly, and they've boiled all their worship down just to this bartering system with God. Worship had become obligatory. And so even the people, they knew they were being extorted, but they just felt like, okay, whatever, let's just do the system. So they every year would come in, and they just, well, we got to pay the prices, and we got to do the thing, and it just is what it is. And they would get their bloodletting, and you know, blood would be flowing from the temple. But they didn't recognize that this was trying to communicate sin is costly, God is gracious, and we need to check our hearts. It wasn't about spiritual worship. It was just about going through the motion. Does that sound familiar? Just going through the motions of worship, following the regulations of worship, not checking the heart of worship. Now, this is a little bit dated, but as I was writing this, I couldn't help myself. 23 years ago, some of you are going to know this, there was a, just a chart topper that came out in the Christian circles, and it was from a guy named Matt Redman. And he wrote the song, Heart of Worship. You guys remember this? If you don't, it's okay, okay? You didn't miss anything. But 
this song was just like everybody loved it. And the lyrics go, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And this was a big deal. I remember singing this before I was even a Christian. Like you just show up to places like, I don't know, fifth quarters after, uh, after football games and everybody's just, you know, depending upon how charismatic they are, they're into it. But I, here's the thing. I think that he was onto something here, which was to point out that worship, because of our own heart's condition, has a tendency to slip off into religious regulation where we just go through the motions and we make worship into an activity that we're engaged in and not a heart posture, purity, like the essentialism of the purity of heart is gone and it just becomes, well, this is who I am, I show up and I do this act of worship. And he had pointed this out as a worship leader, Matt Redman, I read the article about why he said this, that he had gotten just kind of caught up in the motions of going to different stadiums and leading people in these songs, and he felt convicted about it. The Israelites had a way to engage with this. It's called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 135, the the people of Israel, when they got up to the temple, they would take a step, and 15 steps they would recite the Psalms of Ascent. And this was a way through which they would prepare their hearts to come before a holy God. See, the Jews knew because they had all these stories about, you guys remember the Old Testament story where poor old Uzzah gets killed by the Ark of the Covenant? If you've never heard this story, it's a really intense story. Basically, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into Jerusalem and they have, to, they have to carry it a certain way because God said, don't touch this thing, it's holy. And so the oxen are carrying it and of course the oxen stumble and poor Uzzah tries to jump out and do a good thing by catching the Ark and as soon as he touches it, he's gone. That's it. I always read that story, and I'm like, man, that's tough, Lord. Like, just smoke this fool. And he was trying to do something right. David, it says in the scripture, he's angry about this. He's angry at God. Like, why would you kill Uzi? He was a good man trying to do a right thing. And the communication was this. David, you are the problem because you carelessly think that this ark is no big deal. You can just bring it on oxens with logs underneath it. And you don't know that it's, it's carrying the very, my presence. Do you even know what that means? And so David has to be rebuked. And later on, what he does is they literally take a few steps and they sacrifice. They take a few steps and they sacrifice all the way to Jerusalem because David's trying to teach the people of Israel again. We have underestimated the holiness of God. That's what Jesus is communicating here in the temple whenever he drives out the money changers. He says, you all underestimated the acts that we're engaging with. And it's in, our, it's in our day like how, how commonly we can come boldly before the throne room of grace and forget that we're coming now because Christ has torn the curtain veil in two and we get to come before God. We forget just how amazing that gift is and how holy God is. See, the Psalms of Ascent with the priests and the people, they were supposed to be preparing themselves like, oh man, we're about to, we're about to meet up with God here. I've told you guys this story many times, but they put a rope around the priest whenever he would go in with the bells that would jingle so that whenever he went into the Holy of Holies in case he died in there and they stopped hearing the jingling of the bells, they'd just pull his body out. That's what they would do because they were that that significantly scared about God being holy. We, of course, have, just as the Jews of Jesus' day, struggled to forget this in our lackadaisical approach. And I think that the warning from Jesus here is to say, be careful lest you become the den of robbers, the glory thieves. Don't, don't fall into that. Okay, last bit, and we'll close with this. What does Jesus do then? You gotta love it. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. So the chief priests and the scribes are there. They're the ones who are supposed to be the priest, right? Jesus, here comes the true high priest of God. He steps into the temple. And you gotta know these guys feel so, you ever had that moment where you could just recognize that someone feels like someone's stepping on their territory? That's the feeling you get 
with Jesus and the chief priest all the time. They just, they loathe the fact that Jesus is them, but better. They loathe the fact that like they know the Bible and then Jesus is the word. You know, and, and so he steps into the temple and here come the blind and the lame. Why is this significant? In Levitical law, the priests had to preclude the blind and the lame from worship. Said God had told them they can't be priests because they have these deformities. And the whole, the whole idea here is only perfection can come before me. That's the communicated idea from God. So here come the blind and the lame and the priests would basically have to keep them at arm's length away from the worship experience. Jesus, the true high priest, then steps into the temple, casts all these phonies out, looks right to the chief priest, sits down and says, bring the blind and the lame to me. And instead of pushing them out, he heals them. That has to be such a, just a total punch to the face, right? Punch to the gut for the, these priests have done many things. Here's what no human priest could ever do, heal them. They can't do it. Jesus can. Jesus says, not only am I going to drive out all of these spiritual compromisers, but then whenever the people come who have no ability to fix what their maladies are in order to come before God, I'm going to heal them so that they can come before God and worship. So what does it mean? It means Jesus is ushering in a new covenant where broken, sinful, unfit people, hear me on this, does that sound familiar? Broken, sinful, unfit people like you and me can now come before God's throne to worship in spirit and truth through what? Through him, who's who? The true and final high priest, which is why later on Paul will say, no longer do we have to go through priests to get to God. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus shows up and he brings the blind and the lame and says, let me fix what you can't fix in yourself. You haven't seen since birth, no big deal, let him see. Picture this, some of them can't even get up on their feet to get to Jesus. They're crawling to him, having people carry them to Jesus. Jesus heals them and says, now go and walk. We ought to be rocked by this move from Jesus. What a gracious, what a merciful high priest he is. We were blind. We were unable to see the spiritual things necessary for life, and Christ healed our blindness. We were lame, unable to lift ourselves off of the pavement after being beat up by sin in the world, and Jesus comes towards us and heals our lame feet. He not only allows us to walk again towards him, but he allows us to walk again in life. He gives us purpose again, and there's even more, because Christ's intent, and he is accomplishing it, is not just to be the high priest, but to create a kingdom of priests out of you and me. Jesus says, I'm the true high priest, and now all of my followers will be a kingdom of priests who mediate my presence to the world around them. This is why we are called the light of the world. This quote says this, the most significant blessing is that there is no hierarchy of beings, archangels, angels, archbishops, bishops, and priests, standing between the believer and God. Rather, we have union and communion and fellowship with God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And when Christ uttered his last breath on the cross, he tore into the temple veil that shrouded the Holy of Holies. So now in Christ, all believers have been given new rights as ministers and priests like him. That's incredible. If no one's ever told you this, do you know you have, if you're a believer in the room, you have gifts given to you by Jesus for his glory. God has now changed you from being maybe lame and blind like me, where you can't see, you can't even really act all that well. When you try to do the right thing, you do the wrong thing, or you do the right thing in the wrong way. And Jesus has now healed you and then given you gifts to live your life in a way that glorifies him and is good for others, that it mediates the presence of God to people who are far from God in your life. That's unbelievable. With every right birth, the responsibility, of course. 
meaning that rights can lay dormant in your life. And I want to challenge you with this final thought. Don't let the rights that Christ has purchased for you on the cross lay dormant in your life, but take up the responsibility and exercise them for his glory. Don't let them lay dormant. Things like, here's one, no longer do you have to wait for the Ezra of Israel to stand up and and read the Bible in church, but you have the Bible sitting on your lap right now and you can read and interpret and apply the scriptures to your life every morning when you wake up. How amazing is that? What a right we have. And a right can lay dormant unless we take the responsibility that comes along with it and say, I want this for me. So here we are, Jesus, the true prophet. He comes to cleanse us of our idol worship so that we might become his witnesses. Jesus, the true king, comes. He extends the peace of God to us. And now we're his ambassadors and we're called to be peacemakers across the whole earth. And now Jesus, the true high priest, comes to heal us from all the effects of sin. We're his ministers called to live out our lives for his glory. And here's the offer this Palm Sunday, and I pray that you hear it, is that Jesus, the true and better, is the gift of Palm Sunday, himself. He gives us himself. He gives us himself, and Romans says it like this, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So there's two categories. There's Jesus, the true and better, and there's everything else. And Paul says, if he's already given us this, then he, why would he withhold this? He's already given you the most valuable thing, and it's Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Amen? So I pray this morning, as the Psalms say, Taste and see this morning that the Lord is good. Stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Lord, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that this morning what we have is not just a mere fairy tale, but true factual historical events that we can look back on and say, you have done this. You are doing this, and you will eventually do this. We can look to your word. Thank you, Jesus, that we have truth in a world that's grappling and scrounging around for little scraps of truth. We have capital T, truth, because, Jesus, we have you. And so now we want to taste and see. I pray for my friends and those under the sound of my voice who have never tasted from the fruit of the vine. They've never tasted your goodness, Lord Jesus. May this be the moment now this morning, that they taste and see that you're good, that all of their attempts to be a king of their own lives fail, but that Jesus, you're a great king to submit to you. Help us, Lord. Lord Jesus, the, all the attempts to be the authority of our own life and the prophet of our own life, that Lord, you know our steps, you know our ways, you know our future. Lord Jesus, our own, our own attempts to try and mediate some sort of divine experience in our own life through substances or through meditation. Jesus, you're a better priest. You're the true and better priest. Lord, I pray this morning we would engage with you and experience true transcendence in your presence. And as Brendan and the team lead us, my God, and we take of your supper, let the reflection on the goodness of the gospel in this Passion Week mold us and shape us to be the light of the world when we walk out. We need you. We thank you and enjoy. We look forward to that which you have for us this week, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.